Welcome to the BristolCon Fringe, a series of readings from the science fiction and fantasy community. This podcast was recorded in front of a live audience in the centre of Bristol. Welcome back, everyone. Uh, so, we're going to go straight on with some more stories. So, we've got a, another newbie to the Bristol Conference. Uh, hopefully, some will hear for more in the future. But, can everyone give a please a big warm welcome to Chloe Hedgehog. Hi everyone, I'm Chloe. It's nice to meet you all. I've never read anything in public before, so I'm super nervous right now. I have actually got a book published of sorts. I used to work for the Bristol Children's Hospital charity, and they did a Shaun the Sheep trail in 2015, and I I wrote the official souvenir guide to Shaun the Sheep. So not what I thought the subject matter would be of my first book, but there we go. So, I'm currently writing a young adult fantasy novel, and this is the beginning. Nara Fellstone was up and running through the trees the moment her grandfather screamed. There was no hesitation, no wild scramble to look for the source of the noise. It filled her from the inside out, a keening wail that erupted within her head and spread like fire, burning everything in its wake. Questions, doubts, thought were cleansed in an instant. Against the pain, they didn't stand a chance. All that remained was one certainty, rising cold and clear like a wave, dousing the flames. She had to get home, now. Branches whipped her face as she ran, writing red lashes across her cheeks. As she burst through a thicket, one sharp tendril lashed out, catching her mouth and tearing her lip. Her only response was to snatch her head away and sprint faster, ignoring the taste of blood as it trickled onto her tongue. She crashed through the undergrowth, deftly avoiding trees and jumping treacherous gullies in the earth, always heading south. One mile into the forest, she had gone far past the marked oak, her usual stopping point that day. It couldn't hurt, she'd reasoned. What's a few more hundred yards? Apparently a lot. She was hurting by the time she reached the path down to the village. To to anyone else, it would have been nearly invisible, a slight dirt track that wound precariously downhill, barely more than a deer trail. But Nara had worn that line herself over countless hunting trips. She knew every stone, root and rut. She didn't falter. Extending her arms, she started down at a wild pace, catching at trunks and branches whenever she was in fear of falling. She was lucky. Somehow, there's always something to grab onto at the very last second. She made it to the bottom, still on her feet. Cottages were starting to show up ahead, their whitewashed walls gleaming in the sun-drenched world beyond the forest. Nara ignored them. Turning sharply east, she pounded parallel to the tree's edge, though always sticking far back among the shadows. No one could see her. That was the rule. Not the villagers, and certainly never her grandfather. The only reason she always entered the forest near Kinsridge itself, dangerously close to suspicious eyes, was so that he would think she was in the village. If he ever saw her march in the other direction, or, gods forbid, straight out their door and into the trees, he would have a fit, and his health was already poor enough. At the thought of Tagore, she stumbled and nearly fell. He had screamed. The few precious minutes it took Nara to leave Kinsridge behind and fight her way the remaining half-mile to their cottage were agony. Lungs burning as though scraped by glass shards, legs turning steadily to water, she cursed every rotting log she had to dodge, every looping trail of ivy that threatened to snare her. 
The pain, the exhaustion, though, were nothing compared with the fear. Tagore's cry had faded, but something worse had taken its place. A nagging itch in the back of her skull, a creeping, clamorous sense that something awful was waiting for her at home, something beyond her grandfather's usual turns. She knew them well enough. They weren't what had called her. The trees didn't thin, just ended suddenly as though an invisible barrier blocked their way. The abrupt change from twilight to sunset half-blinded Nara as she burst out into the meadow. On its other side, backed by a line of pale, cli pale cliffs, was her home. Sagging ivy-covered walls, cracked wooden shutters and thatch almost rotted through to the timbers revealed themselves as her vision cleared. For the first time, she allowed herself to slow a fraction, gathering the breath to shout. Would he hear? Would he come out that door smiling? Screaming? She never shouted. She stopped and for a moment was surprised that she had stopped. She definitely hadn't intended to. She was so close, there were no more obstacles in her way. Yet her body, sensing something that her mind was too busy to notice, had taken control. Her feet stilled, worn soles slipping in the long grass. Hairs came up on her arms and neck, even though she was hot, so hot, slick with sweat. Finally, it was her ears that made her understand. Below the pulse of blood, below the dragging rasp of her own lungs, she heard nothing. No insects chirped in the grass or buzzed around the wildflowers. No birds sang. Even the meadow itself was impossibly still, not a single stalk swaying or leaf rustling in the breeze that cooled her skin. For 50 yards around the little cottage, it was though time, life itself, had stopped. Nara ordered her feet to move again. She bounded up to the door, slammed it open with such force that plaster flaked from the wall behind and rushed inside. The old man's call had shattered the tranquility of the trees and even now they continued to tremble, a tangible, terrified vibration that would have been imperceptible to Enoin had he not been waiting for it. Alone in the clearing, the girl long since fled, he stood perfectly still and felt the low thrum that sang through the ground. To his heightened senses, attuned to the moods of the forest over hundreds of years, you'll never know. My name's Steve Tanner. I'm here to read an excerpt from my unpublished novel, Blind Faith, the first in my fantasy saga, The Question of Faith. The story takes place in the city of Bluestone, in a country called Claxia. Uh, they're ruled over by the iron hand of the church, um, which basically says law means everything. Um, as the Book of Judgment of Claxia says, the enforcement of law underpins order. Without order, chaos reigns. Law is everything, and justice is incidental. Chapter 1. As Stagpole reached out, he felt his foot slip. For a second, he hung in the air, and in that moment between falling and not falling, he grabbed hold of the window ledge. Burning pain erupted in his shoulder as his arms took his weight, but somehow he held on. Come on! Fighting rising panic, he dug deep and struggled to pull himself up, only to be betrayed by fouling strength. Dangling, he rested his forehead against the cold stone. It can't end like this, he thought, tightening his grip. With a massive effort, he bent his legs and swept the wall beneath him, desperate to find a foothold. His heart leapt as his foot jabbed into crumbling masonry. 
As he lowered his weight onto it, he sent silent thanks to the gods. Annoyingly, the fire on his shoulder was replaced by an explosion of pins and needles. He pushed up, secured his elbows on the sill and flexed his shoulder. Sweat ran into his eyes, stinging and blurring his vision. For hath's sake, he hissed, give me a break. He ground a fist in it as he fought to cling on. He'd sorely misjudged the climb, despite repeating the same route time and again, undertaking the familiar journey to see his little sister, Jamil. As a chosen, she was housed in a domicile located in Bluestone's old quarter, possibly one of their oldest. It certainly looked it. The building's grandeur was fronted by a crumbling facade, built with the same flaky stonework which just saved him, so perhaps he could forgive it, just this once. Like its neighbours, the imposing monolith was past its heyday, requiring more than just a lick of paint to save it from ruin. Better it's torn down, he thought. Yet his wide-eyed sister often spoke of it as a palace. From his point of view, it was a prison, one that his parents had willingly surrendered her to. The arguments with them had begun immediately after Jumel had been taken, only escalating beyond control when they foolishly forbade him to see her. They said that she was chosen, that she was now dedicated to their god Hath, she was no longer his sister. But he stubbornly refused their orders and took to visiting her in secret, even if it meant defying both them and the church. Of late, his infrequent visits were becoming harder, an increase in patrols meant he was moving faster, and that meant mistakes. The last thing he needed, though, was to be found alone on the streets. The church conscripted any they could find to feed the war effort, and many a drunk had paid the price of being in the wrong place at the wrong time. Conscription was a one-way trip, but he decided a long time ago that nothing would stop him from seeing her, not even the roving press gangs. He finished rubbing his eyes, crouched, and pushed up. His legs boosted him high enough to reach the ironwork grill crisscrossing the window, so he grabbed hold of it with both hands. Safe, he thought. Stagpole, a man in his late to mid-teens, considered himself worldwise, and for good reason. Living on the streets meant doing what was necessary, that or going under, and that was not going to happen, not when his sister needed him. So he learned how to survive, first on his own, and then alongside kindred spirits. Because of his ragged looks, he was often mistaken as a street vagabond. Dirty clothes masked the grubby body, but people tended to remember the thin shirt and the trousers, not the face, just as intended. But though he looked wretched, his body was lean and dirty hair disguised a keen mind. After running away from home, he'd taken up a life of crime, stealing the odd loaf here and there, a few coppers and such like, small stuff needed for survival. Experience taught him and a few others they'd do better if they trusted each other, so they formed a small gang. At first he tried to keep his pilfering low-key, but this proved impossible if he were to meet his goal, getting hold of a large amount of cash. He desperately needed enough coin to fund his sister's escape, at least enough to pay for passage to Capstown or Volmont, cities far away to the north and east. In truth, he didn't care where she went as long as he got out of the capital and away from the priest, so he upped his pilfering, a purse here, a purse there, then jewellery adorning the good folk who strolled through the busy markets of Bluestone. He figured they could spare it, but the coins still rolled in too slowly so he's turned his attention to those with larger resources, the storeholders. It was almost too easy to lift goods and dip into their bloated takings. It took tenacity, but he managed. He now gathered more silver than copper. But then a guild cut purse had whispered in his ear, sending shivers down his spine. We know you're active.
intriguing. You have 30 seconds to go, but I, I, I like the cliffhanger. We'll, we'll move on to our next uh, reader, which will be Sue. Uh, Susan McConaughey. Uh, can please put your hands together and welcome her to the morning. Good evening. Well, not unlike everybody else, I have a novel on the go. <laughs> this, however, is just a short story. It's a skill I'm trying to um, hone at the moment. And this story is called Partners in Crime. Joe hung halfway out of the blue decorator's van and watched the arm wrenched off in the terrible ambush. Exposed arteries jumped and fizzed. Lights flickered in the workings. All communications were down. Further along the filthy canyon of a street, the single lamp cast a pool of light on a recumbent figure. Nothing moved. They'd made him human-like. People still preferred a robot that looked like themselves. But limbs you couldn't fold away made you vulnerable. He anchored himself with his good hand and tried half-heartedly to reach the damaged arm as despair enveloped him. The evening had started as routine police surveillance, and this was how it was going to end. He was giving up. He couldn't continue his existence, knowing Dave was dead. Other emotions hit him at this thought. Misery, self-pity, regret. Why? Why did I allow further experiments? I had the choice. The cognitive scientists said having emotions would make me sensitive, more effective, that I could carry out more interesting work and my life would be fuller. But it's made me useless. I can't do anything. Not now, not without motivation. Dave's lying there dead and I don't want to go on, not on my own. A new feeling assailed Joe, a tickling at the back of his throat an unbearable swelling. A large splash of hot liquid fell onto his good hand. He looked at it in wonder. Was he crying? Was this even physiologically possible? A groan and the body on the pavement jerked. His partner was alive. Joe's negative feelings vanished. He had to save him. But how could he do that without his arm? He summoned his basic training. Logical thinking was what he was about, and they had taught him well. Identify the problem, take appropriate action. But he was badly damaged. There was a serious malfunction in the chest region. Cover skin ripped, tendrils of red and yellow wire hanging loose. He couldn't move his left leg. The right had no weight-bearing capacity. And the arm, of course. If he didn't get that going again, he would cease to function. He'd have to propel himself forward so that he'd fall close beside it and take care to do no further damage. Pain would be an issue, as the full pain spectrum had just been programmed in. They were still debating whether that would give him greater sensitivity and problem-solving capacity or simply lead to breakdown at critical moments. Well, he and they were about to find out. Joe thrust himself up. Using his wobbly right foot, he launched himself onto the pavement and landed close to the severed arm. 
This short fall jarred him violently. Weakness nearly overcame him, but his mind was still working as usual, and he repeated his mantra. Identify the problem, take logical steps to solve it, stick with it, even if things get tough. They were Dave's words. The scientists hadn't put it in quite those terms. He dragged the mangled appendage to the wall and propped himself up to work. With his body data overlay indicating a 70% drop in efficiency, there was little time left. He extracted his repair kit from his right upper thigh and handling the tools a little awkwardly with only one hand, he began to reconnect the wires. The real difficulty would be to attach the arm when there was no one there to assist. The clack of wheels on a potholed road. He froze. He didn't want help. If the men were returning, it was to make sure Dave was dead. No one else would stop, not even on seeing a body, and certainly not in this part of the city. A faint light swiveled across the street entrance and the engine hummed on into silence. Joe worked fast. He was experiencing a major power fade, but Dave's need of him could not allow failure. He pulled the last section of wiring into place and relieved, he felt a massive surge of electricity as contact was made. He staggered to Dave, lifted him, cradled him tenderly. Fine, Thank you very much. Very well read. Okay, so we have one more reader uh, this evening. Another old hand uh, in the Bristol Commonwealth. Uh, so put your hands together, please welcome to the stage, Justin Nealon. Thank you very much. Uh, good evening, everybody. Thank you very much. Uh, is there anybody after me? No. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> That's so yeah, you're going to give me a knock on 30 seconds to go, you aren't you? I think it's grossly unfair. This art for art's sake, I, I think we should. Yeah, sure. um, so I shall ramble a bit before we begin. Uh, this is an extract, or actually is a, uh, an attempted prologue from a novel I'm working on set in China. Um, you've all heard of Kublai Khan, haven't you? Okay, well, his crew, the Mongols, invaded China in the 13th century. In the 14th century, there was a rebel movement against the Mongol dynasty. And part of that uh, rebel movement were called the Red Bandanas. They wore red bandanas, okay? So this is a short story that I wrote around this um, theme. And I suppose it's around 1340, 1350, something like that, in, in our time. And it's called The Red Bandanas. Off we go. The sweat dripped off his arms, like after bathing. It was too hot indoors, so he wandered across the meadow, the earth burning the soles of his feet. Even the breeze was scorching. Keep your hat on, gang, and don't go beyond the stream. No, I won't, mother, he said. The little stream was his friend. He liked the gurgling sounds that it made. He plunked himself down in its midst and splashed the water into the air. He liked seeing the rays of the sun dance in the spray as the droplets cooled his body. Reaching over to the bank, he grabbed his bamboo junk and thrust it in the surging stream. It bobbed up and down, cutting a sway through the mighty waves. 
From the dirt road near his house came the distant sounds of thunder. He ignored them and went back to his boat. He was Captain Lu Gang of Sichuan province. His job was to steer the junk through choppy waters and explore the whole world. The thunder was closer. The birds in the trees scattered with cries of alarm. Now they carried menace. He'd heard them before though. They were riders on stallions. Before they passed by, before they passed by on their way to war, or so his father said. Not today. From near his house, the riders shouted into the air, disturbing gentle harmony of stream and sunlight and sky. The horses neighed. He grabbed his toy junk and raced home. Wiping the sweat from his brow, he stopped on the edge of the meadow and peered out from behind a big tree. The riders wore red bandanas. They circled his house, yelling, the horses kicking up dry dust. The peace ran away. The riders unsheathed their sabres, metal grating on metal. His father strode out of the house, shouting, shaking his fist. The men leapt from their saddles, wielding lances, bows and arrows. One waved a wicker torch, red flames licking the sultry air. They were calling his father names that gang didn't understand. His father ran towards the house. The red, a red bandana unleashed an arrow at his father. Everything stopped. The shouting, the calling birds to name. The arrows span through the air slowly, endlessly, splitting the sunbeams. The archer admired his handiwork, waiting for the arrow to pierce its target. The leaves on the trees stopped swaying. The sunlight hid momentarily behind a cloud. The stream stopped gurgling. The arrow was not going to reach his father. It couldn't, ever. Gang squeezed his hand, crushing the bamboo junk, the pieces splintering on the dry earth. The arrow paused just short of his father. Gang prayed for it to retrace its path and return to the bowman. Heaven had to hear his prayer. His father said heaven was a nice, benevolent place. If so, the arrow would stop. He waited. It didn't. It rammed into his father's back. Silence fell, so did his father, who thumped to the ground, arms splayed, kowtowing to the earth. Gang, too, sunk to his knees, his prayers unheard, buried in the soil. The air was leaving his lungs like the spirit was leaving his father. His chest tightened. He was suffocating. Moments later, the noises came back to him, loud and ugly. His mother burst out of the house to tend his father, flat on his face, the arrows sticking out of his back like a tutor to a plant. The red bandanas cheered, guffawing and laughing. They grabbed his mother. She kicked and struggled and screamed, hitting out with arms swinging. They lifted her into the house, her feet off the floor, kicking wildly against the fractious air. The red bandanas went inside the house, his house. Another prolonged scream. Mother, mother, something in him screamed, no! He desperately wanted to run and save her. His legs were stuck. An invisible rope tied them to the spot. If only he could cut it. He wanted to rescue his mother. He could hear her screams. The red bandanas were doing horrible things to her. Her mother screamed, the tree screamed, the meadow screamed. When the stream screamed, he could bear the screams no more. He plugged his ears, but they refused to go away. He lay on his side, ear against the unforgiving earth, listening to the thunder of the horse's hooves, moving farther, farther away. He stared blankly at the burning flames, consuming his precious house, his life, his world. Yet still the screams persisted. 
They were inside him now. He was the screen. Thank you. Thank you. And uh, another big applause for, for all of our readers today. You've all been fantastic. Thank you very much. So, pull yourselves. Go. Okay, and, and stop. Okay, uh, so with the open we don't have the Q&A, so you're not going to get interviewed. So, sorry for those egotists and uh, good luck for those introverts. Um, what we will have, though, is a few announcements. So, if anyone has any um, events or books or things that they'd like to publicize, Anyone? Yes, Sue. Um, some of you may know of a, a, a meeting that takes place every month called Novel Nights. That's um, good because at this time I'm going to be meeting there. Um, so if anybody's interested, it's Wednesday at 8 o'clock and it takes place near the university in the um, Barclay Square at the Square Club. So you're this Wednesday, yes, this, this is Wednesday, yes, two days ago, eight o'clock. Is there a fee to start? Five pounds. Five pounds, okay. Um, okay. Six, 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 six. Six, oh, that's a break set for you. Um, okay. Uh, we also, well, I'll tell you about next month, so that'll be the third Monday, so that's the 15th of May. Um, we have the delightful Anna Newman. I'm very pleased to say, um, as our main uh, reader, and I can't remember how to pronounce his name. Right leg. Right leg. Right leg. Right leg. Right leg. Right leg. Excellent. Uh, so yeah, so it'll be a sci-fi special, um, but I'm sure we'll get Emma to talk about uh, the Split World series as well as that's been concluding. She had a new book out for that, was it Brothers Room? Anyway, fantastic author, uh, do come down for that. Um, and then the following month, which I think is the 20th of June, um, actually no, let's get accurate on that, let's allow people to plan more than one month ahead. Uh, it's the 19th of June, we have Peter Newman, uh, sort of uh, with uh, the launch of the Seven, uh, just coming out, the third of his uh, Vagrant series, uh, so he'll be coming in, in June, and that's very good. And we have more guests throughout the year, which we'll be announcing later on. Um, but yes, you've had a, been a wonderful audience, you've been wonderful readers. Uh, thank you very much for coming along this evening. Uh, the bar downstairs is open until they tell you to leave. Um, and uh, thank you for coming along. Okay, bye. The Bristol Confringe is a monthly podcast produced by the Bristol Con Foundation. The music at the beginning of this podcast is The Future by Chevy174. We'd like to thank the famous Royal Navy volunteer for providing us with a venue, and we'd like to thank you for listening. If you would like to keep up to date with our events, please like our Bristol Confringe page on Facebook or follow us on Twitter at BrizConFringe. <laughs>